This episode is brought to you by Calming Blankets. If people like me can experience family violence, anyone can. And it's not just those women because of their culture or women living in low socioeconomic areas. It's, it's happening not just across Australia, but across the world on, on levels that you know, horrifying. Well, self-doubt is when you're doing something that's maybe new or something where you're stretching and exploring that it's not familiar. And so it's all a sign of growth. Arriving at joy does not take an overnight journey, you know. It's, it's moments of joy that you still have. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer-turned-fun-trepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Hello, beautiful people. Hope you're having an amazing week. Back with another wonderful guest today. I've pushed this week's Yays of Our Lives episode back a little bit until the Gippsland video is ready so you can put some faces to names. So that will be out next week. This week, I was lucky enough to sit down with Rosie Batty, 2015 Australian of the Year and passionate campaigner against domestic violence, during a week where the alarming statistics surrounding violence against women have been brought back to the forefront of our attention. Rosie has turned the unfathomable personal tragedy of losing her son Luke, who was murdered by his father in 2014, into a relentless fight to raise awareness of family violence and address the systemic and many other obstacles to positive change. The topic is a little heavier than usual, but I believe it's such an important conversation to continue to amplify the fact that one woman a week is still killed by her partner or former partner. Rosie also has such powerful insights on rediscovering joy through the paralysis of grief, unraveling her identity from trauma, which is not the only part of who she is. And I loved also having the chance to get to know about the parts of her story that I hadn't heard about in the media right back to her child childhood in the UK. Rosie is also an ambassador for L'Oreal's latest Women of Worth campaign, and we also chat about some of L'Oreal's self-worth commissioned research about the pervasive and destructive nature of self-doubt and low self-esteem among women. If anyone will inspire us all to combat the self-doubt and continue to raise each other up, it's Rosie. I hope you are as moved by her as I was. Rosie Batty, welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. I'm so excited to have you. You're such an incredible human being. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Before we kick off, I love to start by asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them, particularly for people like yourself, where many of us have heard your name and your story. And of course, the first thing I said to you was what an incredible and inspiring human you are, but I'm sure there are very, very normal, relatable parts of your life. So what's something really normal about you? Oh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I would say that most people would say I'm very down to earth. And I think that comes from, I was a farmer's daughter. I lived in a little country village and my dad 
He's very down to earth. Um, he will talk to anybody. He's such a genuine man. And I think, you know, what makes me down to earth is I think a lot of that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. There's always a conversation and always, you can always say hello and, and have a bit of a yarn. And I think the most down to earth thing about me is I just love being scruffy. I just <laughs> love having track, you know, whatever tatty clothes. And so I grew up on a farm you didn't have, you had best clothes, you saved for best and the rest of the time you went around getting dirty and playing. And I think I've always been that person. I like to wear rags around the house almost, you know, and walking my dogs. And so I like to keep my good clothes for best and I like to wear out my older clothes. And, and I, I look I think to myself sometimes, people know who I am, they must think, oh my God, what a disappointment this woman is when you actually meet her. <laughs> Not at all. Comfort is key. You know, I, I scrub up well. I do make sure that when I'm going out somewhere nice, I you know, I look good. Um, well, you know, I like, I, I, I make an effort, but I love not having to wear makeup. I love just wearing duggy clothes. <laughs> and I always feel I'm one of those people that there's always something a bit missing. Haven't quite got the shoes that match. And yet I spend a fortune on clothes. You know, I just feel <laughs> like I look at other people who've got, always got the right outfit, the right accessory. I mean, so I, I think I, I you scrub up put... incredibly well. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I've loved about COVID and, and elements of being um, socially isolated. It is the actual comfort, Ugg boots every day. <laughs> I actually disposed of them at the end of lockdown because... I've gone. It was their time, time for these to go in their bin. You know, so they need to go. Well, that just goes to show that you can take the girl out of the farm, but you just can't take no. the farm out of the girl. <laughs> you just can't. I just don't think you can, and I wouldn't want to. Well, that actually leads very nicely to the first section, which is your way, TA, and that is pretty much tracing back yeah. from everyone's earlier beginnings and reminding people that the person that they meet or that they might have seen on the media or who presents to them now. Now, as someone who has clear direction and is on a mission and wakes up with purpose, no one starts that way. They're a product of so many different chapters and experiences. So I like to take it back to the early childhood and and trace through all the decisions yeah. and sliding doors moments and forks in the road that you've yeah. been through. So take us back to that farm in Laneham, England, and tell us about what you were like as a child. Yes. Well, I think you know, I look back and feel how blessed and fortunate I was to grow up on a farm. Cows were being milked, cattle were in the fields. Every spring, lambs would be born and we would, you know, adopt a little lamb that would perhaps have lost be an oh. orphan and we'd bottle feed it. And, you know, and space, space to build dens and, and, and hiding places. And, you know, we look back and actually high, a lot of it was highly dangerous and you just wouldn't let children <laughs> do any of those things now. But, you know, there was so much adventure to be had. You had so much freedom. I, I, I can only remember, you know, you get up, and you come home knowing that you're supposed to be home for meals or something. And the rest of the time, you you kind of hung out with people you were growing up in the village. And so I was this little girl that wanted to be a tomboy and had my hair cut short. And, you know, people thought I was a boy too, which I was pleased about at the time. <laughs> um, I certainly wasn't into the pinks and the purples and the Barbies, although I did like playing with dolls, actually. I had two younger brothers and the closest 
playmates were mostly boys. And so I was determined to hold my own, you know, climb trees, not cry, be tough, you know. And so, yeah, that was that was my way of growing up. And, and the thing that you know, really dominated my childhood was that I did lose my mum when I was six. And that was that was something that, you know, I can see how that affected me for the rest of my life. Now that I'm mm. older and moving forward in my life, you look back at that moment and realise your whole world just got turned upside down with something you couldn't comprehend or understand. And how that trauma, because we didn't know anything about trauma in those days and and in that generation children really were seen not heard and and they did things to protect you but they didn't really understand how to work with you know three little kids had lost their mum overnight very suddenly and my father being a farmer and a product of men of his generation it was a woman's job to raise the kids he was the breadwinner the provider the man that went out to work he hadn't been brought up and wasn't that dad that played with you or mm. knew how to comfort and, and support you in in, in, in in an emotional sense. But, you know, my dad is one of the nicest, kindest men in the world, but he, he didn't know how to relate to three little kids that really needed their mom. And so... I had extended family, neighbours, community that really I remember very fondly, always being those people that looked out for me and my brothers. We grew up with them and, yeah, they they were a key part of my childhood and, and my life always. So that connection to my mum, I, although I've lived in Australia for over 30 years, I still have all my family in the UK and my roots are still there and my connection is still strong and I keep saying one day I will go back. I've always been very, very confused about where I belong and and yeah, here I am still in Australia, loving <laughs> Australian life, good friends, but I do seek to go home on a regular basis and so that was my childhood really um, a lot of freedom a lot of people will say the same thing we lived beside a big very fast moving dangerous river <laughs> when I look back at learning to swim and swim across it you know I would literally you know it wouldn't be something that you would let your kids do now but that, was, that, that in my generation you had a lot of freedom and we seem to survive you know we seem to live to tell the tale <laughs> It actually sounds very similar to stories from my mum who yeah. grew up in a small country town. The same thing. She's like, I just got kicked out of the door yeah. and told to play and then to come back at dinner. Yes. And I was four. Like, what was yes. I doing? That's right. <laughs> but That's she right. also has the most beautiful stories of, you know, how it takes a village to raise a child. Yes. And for all the things we didn't understand in, in earlier generations about emotional support and gender roles and the many different things that have come so far, perhaps we also did have a much, much stronger sense of community. And and, and, and and certainly there's so much, many of the values and the ethics and the, you know, those previous generations, I've benefited, I've benefited greatly as mm. to who I am now because of that role modelling, yeah. their commitment, their in integrity, their work ethic, their, 
you know, that punctuality. There were so many things. And, that, and, and really, one of the things that I guess they had that we struggle with is their resilience. Absolutely. Their resilience. You know, they didn't know anything other than getting on with life. Yeah. When I look at the greatest influences that I think I've, I've learned from, it would be my grandmother who lived till she was 100. And I, <gasps> I talk about her a lot because after my mum died, she was a huge influence. And, and I think if I live to be an old woman and if I can be anything like my grandmother, she's really told, she taught me how you can continue to live all stages of your life and you can live them as fully as you can. And, it, 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 you know, she was a great inspiration to me and I still, still think of her a lot. A hundred. What an incredible achievement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if there's one thing that you have definitely carried forward, even if you might not think so yourself, it's resilience. Starting from such a young age, going through such, mm. such grief and loss, uh, and then having experienced that again later in your life and still being here with a smile on your face, that this is why I find you so, so incredible. But before we get to that, what did lead you to Australia? And I always get quite fascinated about that time in your life when you move from childhood where you're unburdened by expectation and norms and ideas of career and productivity and then suddenly start to instead of playing and doing the things you like and not doing the things you don't like we suddenly start to be influenced by the should and then what am I going to do with my future and then how do I choose a career path and you know what am I going to be and that suddenly becomes the focus of our attention I know you did a secretarial course after <laughs> high school <laughs> but it was interesting you found that out actually I was thinking <laughs> it's interesting to see that yeah it was interesting isn't it because you look at where you have been influenced and you don't even realize but um, my father remarried and my stepmother was a secretary and really I just couldn't wait to leave school I left school at 16 I couldn't get out quick enough <laughs> the really the thought of going to university but studying till I was 21 seemed just an eternity that I couldn't bear the thought of so I just <laughs> you know I was out and I was earning money I got a job in a bank I worked there for quite a few years. My stepmother had travelled from New Zealand and she'd met my father in the UK and, of course, she married him, so her future, and, you know, she's remained in the UK, but she came from New Zealand. I think what she did was from this little environment in England, this little small community where nobody really travelled much and nobody went very far. And some people who lived in that village had never been to London and never been outside of a two-hour radius of the village, you know. So for me, I, I think I always had this aspiration to not just travel a little bit and do the predictable holidays that English people did, which was, you know, spend a couple of weeks in a, on the beach sunbathing because <laughs> that's the only time you can get some decent weather. It's like, let's, you know, go to Spain, go to France, go on, do some intensive sunbathing for two weeks to go home with a tan <laughs> at all costs. So for me, I, I always thought I'd like to do more than that. I'd like to actually work overseas. And so it was quite difficult for me to summon up the courage to actually do it. I talked about it a long time before I actually did it. And I spent about not quite two years, but quite a while as a nanny in Austria. Um, you know, it was the first taste of being away from home. And I, I was chronically homesick, but too ashamed to admit it. So I <laughs> just cried myself to sleep every night without telling anybody. Oh, um, no. <laughs> and then I, you know, I thought, okay, what am I going to do with my life? I know, I'll do a secretarial course because that's what my <laughs> stepmother did. So I went back and I did 
this intensive course, which should have been two years into the one year. And I loved it. I worked so hard. I was very proud of myself. I was, a, I worked really hard at shorthand and was really quite good. And then of course, after I'd done that, I, I still had itchy feet and still had aspirations to travel. And, and so I got around the world ticket, which was going to Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Canada. Um, and off I went and I really looked back and had no idea. I mean, one stupid thing I did was I came with a suitcase and had arrived and realized what an idiot because everyone else had got <laughs> backpacks. And I, here I was with this suitcase and I, I looked very uncool and stupid. So I took me a few days and then set off. Yeah, I had that desire to not just travel, but to actually be able to work. And Australia gave me a six month visa, which is one of the few people, places you could legally work so that gave me that experience and so you know eventually in time I kind of was driven to um I did some clean a cleaning job up in Cape Tribulation in the far north Queensland and found myself staying in places that were different and and amazing (laughs) and you know I had the time of my life on so many levels and um when I I, you know a year later I arrived home I'd, I'd met my old boyfriend, a boyfriend and was very torn about what I was going to do. And so he arrived on my doorstep and I thought, oh, God. I had three options. I decided I regretted I hadn't gone to uni. So I did get a place and a confirmed place at a uni. The other option was to work and live back where I came from and get a, a local job. So I actually became, I got offered a job as a word processing supervisor and then the third option was to go back to Australia apply for residency on the grounds of a de facto relationship with my boyfriend Steve so I that was the option I then came back to Australia and and I've been here ever since (laughs) and we have been so lucky to have you so much so that you became nearly 30 years later an Australian of the year so you're well and truly an Australian by our standards anyway (laughs) ironically Seeing as I'm not, I'm English, but you yeah. know, fortunately, I had the insight to very quickly. I'd only been a resident two years before I applied for citizenship, so I'm one of those English people that got my citizenship very quickly. Didn't look back. Never considered, you know, that it was such a big thing. But I've still got friends here that are from English descent that have never got the citizenship. You know, and I wow. give them a poke every now and again. <laughs> A quick word from our partner in Yay this week. It's no secret in the neighbourhood that I suffer from crippling anxiety at times. And even if I'm not, winding down and finding calmness is something I adore but don't always find the easiest. I've really had to cultivate routines and tools to trigger a state of relaxation when I need to unwind. And discovering calming blankets has been, no word of a lie, a game changer. Their premium weighted blankets help improve sleep and reduce feelings of stress and anxiety and come in both adults and children's sizes. The inner of your calming blanket is sewn with thousands of evenly distributed glass beads which help create a weighted effect and the outer is easily washable. The blankets use the technique of deep touch pressure stimulation which studies show helps to trigger an instant calming effect like the feeling of a hug or a baby being swaddled. They are so cozy. Nick says I'm like a parrot now. If he needs to 
calm me down. He just throws my calming blanket over me. There's original bamboo and handwoven versions too, so there's something for everyone. I can't go a day without mine. They've changed my wellbeing routine so much. And just for the neighbourhood, I've got $115 off any adult weighted blanket for you when you use the code SEIZETHEYA. Link in the show notes now. So over the next sort of, well, the big interval between arriving here in 1988 and then Mm. the sort of 2014, 2015, where many people's life would still be continuing on this non-linear, confusing, tumultuous pathway of what's my purpose, who am I, what's my direction, and, and be able to devote that attention solely to sort of what they wanted and their fulfillment a part of your life was very much influenced, impacted and totally spun uh, on its head by a very unfortunate situation that uh, is quite a heart-wrenching story that you've shared so generously, even though I'm sure it has been incredibly traumatic and difficult to talk about, to raise public awareness and become a very active domestic violence campaigner from about 2014. Tell us that story if you're comfortable to talk about it and particularly this week, I think, uh, after the death of Sarah Everard in London, it's re-sparked a big conversation about just this issue and I'm so glad that we're speaking in this week in particular. Tell us the story. So um, it was seven years ago, February the 12th. I dropped my little boy off for cricket practice. Um, It was towards the end of the cricket season. Luke was 11. His father was there. I returned a couple of hours later to pick him up and he he asked if he could have a little bit of extra time with his dad, practicing bowling in the nets. It was a beautiful hot evening and he hadn't seen his father for a little while because we'd just come back from the UK. And so I said, sure. And as I was um, just having a quick chat with another parent and just distracted, um, I realized that Luke wasn't quite in my line of sight, but I knew where he was. And then I heard, um, I heard something that made my skin crawl and, and me realise that something, something really terrible had happened. And I couldn't see what it was, and I didn't know what it was, but I just ran to it. And um, I saw Greg standing over Luke, and I had, I assumed he'd had a really terrible accident, and so I ran in the opposite direction to get an ambulance. But really what had happened is Greg had actually hit Luke over the back of the head with such force that he would have never recovered from that fatal blow. And um, unfortunately, Luke um, died. And um, I don't go into the detail about that, but he died and his father was shot by police and died later. And... You know, Greg killed his son as an act of revenge and power and control um, to hurt me and make me suffer for the rest of my life. And and I think that journey of having a, a child together, but a long history of, of violence with Luke's father, who I never married and never lived with, what had been a really tough battle, a very tough battle for me. And, um, you know, so ultimately I was, I ended up at the police station for the entire night, giving evidence and things like that. And um, 
the next day, a lot of the people Luke and I knew, friends, family, you know, not particularly family, all my family were in the UK, realising they needed to come over. My house was full of people that were just in shock and disbelief and needing to comfort each other. So they came over to my house and as I kind of came in and out of kind of awareness, I heard people talking about the media outside and so I... I made it a decision. I, I, haven't, I had no agenda. I didn't really understand what I was doing and why I was doing it. But I went out to speak to the media to really to ask them to move away and respect my privacy. But um, I was encouraged to speak and I, I did actually spend quite a bit of time talking to the media and it was, it seemed to be something that um, captured everybody at that time and people were incredulous that I could actually put into context what had happened to me which was one of the things that I, I felt was most powerful is I said you know family violence can happen to anybody no matter how nice your house is how intelligent you are or, and how nice your house is and I really wanted to convey that you know if people like me can experience family violence, anyone can. And it's not just those women because of their culture or women living in low socioeconomic areas. It's, it's happening not just across Australia, but across the world on, on levels that, you know, are horrifying. And back then we weren't talking about family violence. It wasn't making the headlines. It was one of those societal issues that, really didn't get media attention and didn't wasn't something we talked about it was as if it was a dirty little secret that we all somehow knew mm. to keep quiet about it it, it you know it's very difficult to get appropriate police response perpetrators just not made accountable it it's so difficult and yet it's such a significant issue that you know one woman a week is being murdered every single oh way one in three women will experience physical violence in their lifetime and here i was you know someone that had was a strong independent woman never known any violence at all through any family members or anywhere at any time throughout my whole upbringing and yet here i was finding myself with this with luke's father somebody that i'd met through work and um, but been attracted to and and drawn towards and um, and then um, found myself in a dynamic with him where I didn't recognize I was it was violence because it wasn't initially physical so I I didn't know anything about violence uh, so I didn't see it until I had counseling and the counselor actually gave me a handout and showed me the different forms of violence and I recognized that I was experiencing all of these yeah. except physical you know I thought people would a lot worse off than me and, and and you know it's very difficult for the police to be able to do anything and there's very little that anyone can do so you 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 know you are subjected to a lot of psychological abuse all, all forms with very little avenues of support and help and so you do manage learn to manage a lot of this yourself and have to work out your own strategies so that you don't go insane or ruin your life and you know different times were incredibly difficult for me and you just 
have to try and work out how can I be the best mum for Luke? How am I going to bring up a little boy that's not going to repeat the patterns of his father? How am I going to bring up a little boy that's going to be well-adjusted and um, happy? Mm. And that was my world to make sure that Luke had every opportunity I could possibly give him and be a well-adjusted young man that was kind and caring and sensitive and sweet, you know, and and how could I do everything in my power so that he was going to be, uh, you know, a good role model for men. And so that was my, that was what I was really striving to try and do. And, And I always wanted Luke to know that his father loved him and that his father because he did and and that you know I didn't want him to grow up wondering about his dad and feeling he'd been abandoned by his father so I I really encouraged and supported his relationship with Greg um, and in fact the system expects you to do that and in actual fact penalizes you if you don't mm. do that and and you know I have it I would have a different approach now but I you know did what I thought was the right thing and I would now, I would do it differently because you can't be a, a good dad if you're a violent and abusive partner. You're not a good role model to your children if you're, be, if you're choosing violent behaviours yes. to, to get control and power, you know. And so realising and learning that, um, you know, Greg had mental health issues he was also, and, and because of that, he, he, he couldn't hold down a job. And because of that, he was struggled with hardship and homelessness often. You know, his, his life was slipping out of control. And, and ultimately, there is no mental health intervention. And even if you're seeking mental health support and um, intervention, it's still a broken system. But for someone who is struggling with paranoia and delusion and and is blaming, you know, doesn't see that the fault is with them and that everybody else is, you know, um, is conspiring against them. Yeah. You know, they're not going to go looking for help. And, and so you see somebody who is, is gradually over years continues to decline. It's, it's quite tragic and, and it impacts on many people around them. But mm-hmm. violence isn't caused by mental health. You know, these are still choices that people do make. So Greg was struggling with mental health issues. He was also a marijuana addict, but he also chose to be a violent and abusive man. Um, mm. And I think that was a clear journey for me to try to resolve all of that and to understand it. And through Luke's coronal inquest, to deeply understand the systemic failings that contributed, didn't cause, but contributed to lack of support for me and Luke I felt fortunate in one way that I did get to have Luke's coronal inquest and had enormous support from some amazing people so that I could deeply understand I did everything I could you know it wasn't enough it wasn't what I I I wish I made different choices but ultimately I did the best I could and so I don't feel racked with guilt and remorse I feel you know it's 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 a horrendous thing to to get over and it's something that's very very difficult for people to know how to support you or what to say and it's a journey I don't think you think you're ever going to recover from or you know you 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 can't envisage you're going to be okay at some point further down the track because it's just such a horrible thing to have to navigate and work out how you're going to get through this. I think even just 
from what you've said so far, you've already revealed or unveiled why it's not as simple as it can seem when the question is put in a way of, well, if you face violence in an unpleasant situation, why don't you just walk away? There's the difficulty in identifying the violence. There are systemic difficulties that make support or other forms of intervention a challenge. And then there's also the fact that when a child is involved as a mother, there is so much more of an incentive to stick with a situation to try and work through it rather than, you know, it's just not nearly as simple as Mm. a bad situation, walk away from it. It's very complex. It's very difficult when people don't have, you know, don't always have family support. They don't always have somewhere they can go. They look at hardship. They look at homelessness. These are the realities that face many women and families escaping violence. But the thing I think that frustrates me more than anything, and we're having this conversation now, is that people expect women to take the responsibility to find the solution. And this is what we have done wrong all the time, and we still do it. We should be putting pressure on the person choosing violence to stop being violent. And this is the shift and the change we are gradually seeing where we're waking up to the fact that it's overwhelmingly men's violence against women and it's men's behaviour that must change. Yes. So when we look at equality, and this is where, you know, unfortunately in past generations and where we are sit today, we have entrenched beliefs, we are conditioned to expect that somehow through men's entitlement that women are their possessions. Mm. And so these are the things that I think are those invisible, that invisible conditioning where we really have to look within ourselves and say, well, I don't want my daughter, my granddaughter, my sister, my niece to experience anything like this. But we all start off as innocent children and through our role modelling of our parents and those that are close to us, we pick up behaviours. We start to find our space in the world. And, and this is where we are now, is we women are no longer accepting inequality. So, you know, my journey has been continuing to become more aware or challenge my thinking, um, understand things that have shifted and changed in in the in my lifetime I would say that that's probably a big part because of you and the advocacy that you've been doing and how instrumental you've been in things like the Royal Commission in 2015 which Mm. hadn't happened in Victoria before and Mm. of course there is still so far to go but even just this week, the protests that there have been and, and the tagline and language changing from protect our daughters to educate our sons mm. is a big psychological shift in the way that we perceive these issues and then yeah. consequently perceive the solution as not just being women, carry keys, carry a knife, don't walk alone. Like it can't always be focused at our changes in behaviour around a problem. It, can, it has to be the source of the problem that we address. This is why I think it's so incredible that you have not been so, and I'm sure there were times where you were consumed by grief, but you have used your experience and generously shared the trauma and the grief and the statistics and the realizations and work you've had to do to help other women understand these dynamics, to help people who have never faced family violence understand what others experience and to help people who might be experiencing something more easily be able to identify it. So I think there's there's two big things that I'd love to understand from sort of your past, you know, 10 years or so. Firstly, the advocacy 
how far you think we have to go, what people can do to help spread awareness and, and change perspectives and the systemic inequalities that still need work. But also on a personal level, I wouldn't have thought that I would ever sit down with you to have a conversation about joy. But it seems that you have done enough work and been able to push through what I can only imagine are the darkest moments that anyone has ever experienced to find there is still a reason to live and that grief is surmountable and it never leaves you, of course, but you can learn to live through what is the worst experience anyone could ever dream. If you could dream up the worst tragedy in life, it is probably close to what you've experienced. Mm. So I think the advocacy, I mean, I know through what I've been through, I've, I meet and have met some amazing people who, again, have had, may not be the same thing that's happened to them, but through their tragedy or through their adversity, they've been inspired and felt compelled to want to make change because they don't want someone to go through what they've gone through. And they don't want whatever's happened to have been in vain, that from this change is possible. So, you know, there are a number of people that will look at working and ploughing their pain into this, you know, this whatever work it it is so that um, it's raising awareness or whatever it may be. And I think for me, it just gave me the, the purpose and meaning. You know, that gave me direction. It gave me purpose. It gave me meaning. It gave me a reason to get up every day. I felt so fortunate in the most unfortunate situation, so fortunate that people were actually wanting to speak to me. They wanted to listen to me. They were hanging off every word I was saying. Whether it was, you know, whether it was a prime minister, it was, mm. I was meeting prime ministers, I was meeting leading <laughs> politicians, I was meeting the most influential people in this country. And they were listening to me with desire to to make change. Um, and when you think that the, the worst thing about experiencing family violence is you're powerless. You feel so that your voice isn't being heard by anybody. The police, the courts, even your friends don't sometimes really know what to do or how to say, you know, what to say. And then, so it's a really lonely and disempowering journey. And here I am being awarded left, right and centre with these amazing awards. And I felt so confused because yeah. here I was that at any other time in my life, what a journey. You know, I was flying here and there. I was visiting remote Aboriginal communities. I was travelling into regional areas of Australia because I wanted to visit communities. I wanted to visit women, Aboriginal women, women from different backgrounds. I wanted to, everyone to understand this is not just your problem. This is happening to white privileged middle-class women like me. We're sharing all of this. This is not your fault. This is not because you are who you are. This is, this is across the world and it's people like me, you and everybody. And that, that was so powerful. That was so emotionally connecting. I had, you know, people from the biggest country companies in Australia wanting to listen to me to say, what do we need to do? You know, if, if we are a bank and we have 60,000 staff and a large proportion, if not half of that workforce or three quarters of it is women, and you're saying one in three women will be experiencing violence, that must mean we have a lot of our own workplace that we need to understand what, what systems and processes we need to have internally. And then if we think as a bank again, 
we have all our customers and one mm. in three women they were coming into our branch are going to be experienced this is huge and people start and when i put it into that context people started to recognize they needed to do something and so the rewarding part of my advocacy is you know when i was australian of the year i spoke at over 250 major events and the following year i did 180 and after the third year i stopped counting <laughs> but i did that because of the ripple effect that can be achieved i realized through speaking out that people were telling me I had a gift, that I actually was good at speaking. So as much as I was scared shitless when I first started doing it, <laughs> I spoke from the heart. I stood up and whatever came out of my mouth was what came out of my mouth. I still very much speak like that now, actually. So that is an amazing experience to feel heard, to feel validated, to feel that you've made some change. What I didn't realise is how long change takes. <laughs> so as I was swept away with this, I've got to do it now. I've got to do all of this now. I've, I've, I can't stop. I can't stop. I can't slow down. This is so important. I didn't realize that, you know, change takes, it's so incremental. It's really hard to see we've changed at all unless you look back. And so when I look back at my childhood, when I look back even 10 years ago, I can see the improvements but when I hear another woman's been murdered, when I hear of another lead politician has said or a prime minister, and I just think, I feel so frustrated because those in, in power and who have the most influence are often the ones that are holding us back right now. Mm. And I do think that um, the arriving at joy does not take an overnight journey, you know. It's, it's moments of joy that you still have. You know, very soon after Luke died, there were still moments where you could find something humorous. You could still find yourself laughing about something. But privately, you know, when you put on a brave face, when you're in front of the media, when people see you, you're putting on a brave face. I was brought up by everybody around me being very stoic, yeah. very strong, very brave. I knew how to be that. But well, I'd go home, I'd go to bed every night and I'd be crying and I would be without Luke. And it didn't matter how busy I kept myself, every single day I was trying to avoid the reality that I couldn't bring Luke back. I could not bring him back. And when I look back, I can see that keeping myself busy, pouring myself into advocacy on one level was distracting me from yet more pain, yet more grief. And I do believe I was feeling enough pain at that time. I couldn't bear any more pain or grief. And I think that you can't avoid it forever, but I think when you are ready for the next levels that are about to come, that they come. And, and that's what life does to you. And I, I you know, three, three or four years ago, I, I did walk away from the foundation that I'd set up in Luke's name. It was an incredibly difficult thing for me to do. I was broken at the time. I was utterly broken and it took me six months of being at home alone, barely able to sleep and really affected uh, because that wasn't my plan. You know, really I didn't have the professional skills. 
I didn't understand how to set up an organization. So there's so much I was learning on top of everything else. But at the most, I was grieving. I was struggling with PTSD. I didn't know what PTSD looked like. I didn't know yet, never mind me in it. And, and, you know, a lot of people talk about trauma and PTSD, but they don't know what it looks like in action. Well, I can tell you it's not pleasant for people. Yeah. And, and, and when they see this behavior from you, some people, you know, are judgmental because they expect you, you know, Rosie Batty to be something that they've put on a pedestal. And real people, real people with emotional intelligence, real people with compassion, real people with a professional understanding. This woman has had her son murdered. And look at her. She's been launched everywhere, you know. She's this public name. There was no privacy for me. Everybody knew who I was. Everybody recognized me. And I, for a period of time, I just did the very best I could but it was unsustainable and, and I realised that, you know, I needed to slow down, stop and mm. work out what was I going to do. And I knew the foundation had started to make me really unhappy. I couldn't bear the thought of it not being there because it was in Luke's name and yet I couldn't see a way forward. If it was to do, if I was to do it now, it would be a very different journey. <laughs> that's the point though. If you were to go back and change everything, you would do it differently, but that's the point. You would because you learnt from that experience how to do it differently. <laughs> but you don't necessarily want to learn what you learn at the time, you know. Exactly. You, you, and so you look back and you realise the insights and wisdom I ha- now have and, 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 and how I feel. I'm, I feel like more like my old self. I feel like I found myself again. I'm not consumed every day with pain about Luke. Of course, I have my sad moments, Mm. but I have many gaps in between where I actually enjoy my life. You know, I spent a lot of time really, you know, whether it's through counselling, whether it's practising mindfulness and gratitude, whether it's a combination of all the things I've learned throughout my life and the influence people have had on me that really means so much to me and the great friendships that have really been able to back me and go the distance. But I realised that, you know, 20 odd years ago, before I had Luke, I always had an ambition for as long as I can remember to walk the great walks around the world. And I I did go trekking in Nepal uh, 20 odd years ago. And so I started this again. And and so I know that a lot of my recovery and the greatest moments of joy are really (laughs) when I'm walking, doing a lot of walking. It's physically hard, but you're in beautiful scenery. And that kind of meditational kind of space you find yourself in where you're just walking from A to B, maybe 25, 30 kilometres a day. It's just fabulous. And so I've been able to, you know, when I had Luke, I was a single mom. I was surviving on Centrelink benefits for longer than I ever thought I ever have to. I do know how it is to just to worry about keeping a roof over your head and paying the bills. And now, of course, you know, I have had amazing opportunities come to me that would never have happened otherwise and so that's a very conflicting feeling as well where of course you know the greatest opportunities have come 
since losing Luke and because of losing Luke. And so I know he would just go, go for it, mum, you know. And um, so I, I have taken that time to go, you know what, all the years I had Luke, I did the best I could. And I wanted him to know his family in the UK. And we would go over, you know, once every 18 months or two years. And he, you know, I took him to Disneyland in Paris. I took him to the oh. Legoland in Windsor. And, and, and I did as much as I could in his little life. I wish there was more I could have done with him. But now I can do what I want to do. I can, and I still combine it with trips to the UK. Yeah. But instead of just going to the UK to see family, I will tack on another trip. Like I met my family <laughs> in Edinburgh, and I did the great ocean, the great, um, a, a wonderful walk in in Scotland. And so I, I just feel so fortunate, and it has helped me so much. And I think that um, now I have more moments of happiness than I have sadness. That may change in a few weeks' time. I may go through a very melancholic stage again, which I did during COVID. But I know I will come through it. I know that those that difficult time, that melancholic time, you know, I know I will come through that again and I will come through that and I will find that good place. Yeah. So I, I know that things pass. But I think it's incredibly inspiring to hear stories like yours because they remind us that we can always come back to a point and a purpose yeah. and a joy or a moment of joy, even if those moments are years apart in the beginning. And something that's been sort of coming into my mind as you've been speaking is the idea that is common to all of the guests and stories we've had on this, even though many have not been anywhere near as traumatic or grief-stricken as yours. But the common theme is that everything in your life unravels in chapters and that includes change. As you mentioned, the change as a society that we're experiencing won't happen at once. It will happen in chapters. Mm. And same with grief, that will unravel in chapters. And Well, the, the, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about grief a lot more obviously now that I'm kind of an expert in it, but people don't talk about grief. We don't grieve well. We expect people to either hide themselves away and we have an impression of what grief mm. would look like. And yet we have examples of so many who actually, you know, people would say, I could never cope with that. I could never do what you've done. And yet we do. We actually have amazing strength within us. It's, it's amazing how you, you can find that within you. Mm. Um, um, but you know what helps me on a recover on a, on a um, or find those moments of joys. Maybe somebody's you know different for somebody else, but I do think that we struggle to talk about grief, and we struggle to we don't feel comfortable with people being openly sad, and we feel yeah. like we need to fix it or yeah. we need to say something that's gonna. Pep you up, diff yes. Yeah. And I, you know, people used to say to me, I don't know what to say. She raised, there's nothing to say. This is just shit. Yeah. And really, what people, they just want you to know that they're there for you. And that's it. You, you don't need to say anything. You're just there. And sometimes by just being there is accepting people in their worst, at their worst, at their angriest, at their saddest, at their most frustrated, and knowing this is where they're at and not judging and walking away or um and that's what and, I was saying before about chapters about how grief does unravel in chapters and the needs are mm. very acute in the in the shock and the trauma and PTSD phase but it doesn't end 
just one day, but you will go through chapters where you do need different things and where you have better chapters and worse chapters. And and I think it's similar to what you were mentioning about Luke's foundation as well. Another thing that unravels in chapters is identity. And for some of mm. one of your chapters, your whole identity was the trauma. But as you grow through it, slowly, slowly, you find parts of yourself again. And something my mum always said to me is, you know, your why stays the same, but your how might have to change. So if your yes. if your purpose is Luke's legacy, in one chapter it was the foundation, in the next chapter it's maybe not, and that's okay to go through different phases. Absolutely. And I think what's important is also that I've realised is that, as you said, for the first five years or so, it was very much about advocating um, really pushing public awareness, all consuming about family violence. Now, it's, it's for me, it's still an evolving journey. And what do I aspire to be able to share and talk about? And yeah, you, I, I think it's difficult when you don't realise you're being trapped in the trauma of your past and, and, and what people are asking of you to continue keep, to keep talking about the trauma of your past. And mm. so I feel that that happens less to me now because I actually talk about other things and that can include mental health because I think now that I'm further along the journey, I can look back at where my mental health was and the different mental health challenges I had, which I didn't recognize at the time. I just didn't like how I was acting or what I was feeling or what I was, you know, sometimes what I was saying. And I didn't recognize that as PTSD. So I can talk about that now because I think it's a really important conversation to, to keep being open and to share because there were many times when people put me on a pedestal and said, you know, you're this amazing person. And I I think, Oh no, you don't know me. You know, this imposter, (laughs) this isn't, I'm an imposter. And so this is why I think, you know, that the campaign I'm currently um, an ambassador for with L'Oreal, it speaks to me is because um, I struggle with imposter syndrome enormously to the point of, you know, holding myself back so much. And then by being given a strain of the year, it was almost like, Oh my God, God, you know, I'm never going to be able to do this. And so I push through as much as I can these grave fears. But that's, that's you know, that's the reality that you don't talk, people don't always know the terror mm. behind the smile as you're thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, this isn't me. I shouldn't be here. I'm not worthy. And I think that's something wonderful about the chapter of the journey you are in now is that your identity is no longer fully consumed by grief and trauma. That's right. And you have been able to communicate with women about themes that are present in your journey in one form, but even if we can't necessarily empathize with the exact situation you Mm. were in, we can extract so many important lessons from that. So as a L'Oreal ambassador, the latest uh, campaign that's come out has been around L'Oreal self-worth commissioned research into self-doubt, which is Mm. a major theme for this podcast. And the statistics are absolutely horrible. 94% of Australian women experience low self-esteem, 94%, with 39% of women experiencing it daily. And that's just a horrid reflection on the the pervasiveness of imposter syndrome mm. and never feeling like we're worthy, let or alone adding enough, trauma yes. yeah, to your identity. And think of what we can achieve when we're confident and mm. supported and feel worthy of you know, our place on the stage or our place in the office or our place at the mm. boardroom, but it's still clearly something we face 
all the time. So what has it meant to you to be involved with this campaign? And I'm sure many times in many different forms, self-esteem has has been something you've had to work through and particularly trying to find your place on a stage that you never asked for as well, suddenly yeah. being so thrust th- into the media. <laughs> I think that being part of a campaign like Women of Worth, it, it helps reinforce that sometimes, you know, that it's really one really lovely to be acknowledged publicly because it helps reinforce that you still yeah, you're still struggling with who you are and that you're worth these accolades or these awards and I but I think that the uh, the opportunity to be able to speak your truth and for that wisdom or insight to resonate for people and that honesty and sharing of your vulnerability and recognizing that you're not alone and actual fact these people who thought got it all together are also sharing their vulnerability and I think that that's that's how you can actually put it aside and Mm. go well okay yeah got it but I'm not going to let it hold me back I'm not going to let it define me I'm actually going to sit with it and I'm going to extend myself and push through it and then that becomes okay that becomes you know that becomes okay and comfortable and so here again you've forced yourself outside of your comfort zone you've learned new skills you've met new people you're doing more than you ever thought you could and that's I think how you keep growing you know so campaigns like this I think have really strong messaging and if, if people can see through my story through my truth through my uh, insights and they can find more of themselves I mean that, that's that's amazing isn't it and I think it's really encouraging continues to strengthen me it gives me greater strength that's all I can say and yeah. if, if that's a contagious Uh, If that's contagious, I think that has to be a really good thing. And I love what you said about self-doubt, that it is something that's probably always going to come. It's like, it's a sign that, you know, Mm. I like it because it's a sign I'm not complacent, but it's just a reflex. It's like hitting your elbow and your arm moves. You do something scary, you experience self-doubt, but then you just just Self-doubt is when you're doing something that's maybe new or something where you're stretching and exploring that it's not familiar. And so it's all a sign of growth. Absolutely. And so it's, you know, and, and many of us hold ourselves back through through fear of failure or looking silly or not wanting to rock the boat. And sometimes it's just timing yeah. too, you know, where you weren't may not have been ready some years ago, but now you really are. And and not to kind of beat yourself up if you didn't, you know, explore those opportunities five years ago because here they are. And maybe the timing's just so much better right now. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it's a sign of growth. It's an, I'm I'm 59. Oh my gosh, you don't look at it at all. That's a surprise. Um, but if I can be a role model too to women who are in that who are more mature, that you just keep growing and you keep exploring and you keep yeah. putting yourselves in positions where you you didn't think you could do something or you'd ever be welcomed that's to me I can't see that I'll ever not do that actually I think that's part of my DNA but I also again I talked about my grandmother I you know she lived till she was 100 in independently in her own home um, becoming obviously more physically frail but always had a solution but she couldn't, didn't have the strength to mash her potatoes on the kitchen bench. She put them on the floor and put her body weight behind <laughs> it. You know, she always adapted and always had interests, always had hobbies. She kept her, she watched quiz shows to keep her brain sharp. So she always had an interest and a curiosity in life and had a great sense of humour. And I think, well, 
I've been I've seen what it can be and how you can continue to adapt mm. and continue to test yourself and and keep keep moving forward in your life in ways that are age relevant, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was actually my second last question for you. And our last section, which I've kind of scrapped in this chat, you've just been so fascinating. The last section is your play TA. You know, how you find joy, whether it be in big gestures or small moments that's unrelated to the identity that people often ascribe to you, that's not productive, that's not for achieving or advocacy or spreading awareness. You know, your grandmother equivalent of the quiz show or that's like the walks that you go on you know are there puzzles or board games or any hobbies you do that bring you joy I think every single day I get up no matter rain hail or shine almost sometimes if it was really hailing I might not I walk my dog (laughs) I love to walk my dogs I have the only time I don't is if I'm traveling somewhere and literally can't do it that day but ultimately every single day I've always got up early and walked my dogs. And the joy they give you through their innocent play, their happy demeanor, you can't stay grumpy, you can't stay miserable. You just, that to me is my, sets me up every day. Um, you get fresh air, you meet other dog, dog walking <laughs> people that you get to know and, and, and say quick hellos or a bit of a longer chat. Yeah, so I think... That for me has always been um, what I enjoy doing. Is- and now you have a puppy, so I imagine it's a bit more crazy, but even more enjoyable. <laughs> he was chasing a couple of birds today. It was quite funny because he's, he's quite small, so he's not that fast yet, but he did. He gave it a good go. <laughs> and final question, what is your favourite quote? I was thinking about that. Um, I guess, I don't know whether it's my favourite, but it was one that comes back to me constantly, which is feel feel the fear and do it anyway. And it was the title of a book by Susan Jeffers. I bought it like 30 odd years ago, I bet, and had it on my bookshelf. I don't know that I read it in its entirety. I just always feel that that title says everything I do. I've pushed myself through all self-doubt and fears, whether it's coming to Australia and traveling, whether it's driving around Europe in my little old car. I've been terrified of those things, but I haven't let it stop me Mm. or hold me back. That's the thing I think, feel the fear and do it anyway. It's something that speaks to me, I think, yeah. Oh, Rosie, I think it speaks about you as well. You are definitely one of those people who has pushed through more than many people have had to deal with in a lifetime. And you might not feel like you're on a pedestal, but I'm putting you right up there. (laughs) You are just (laughs) the embodiment of strength and resilience and inspiration. Honestly, for the work that you have put back into changing our perceptions on such an incredibly important issue and are continuing to create such a wonderful legacy for for you and Luke. So thank you so, so much for joining. Thank you, Sarah. I don't think there's been an episode where I've asked less questions and dropped our usual structure so much. I was just so fascinated by Rosie's strength, passion and eloquence. It's so hard to fathom what she has been through and how she could ever find yay again. But as I always say, I can't ever lead conversations about joy without also acknowledging the sometimes horrific and tragic things that drive people right off their path yay. But hearing how they fight their way back is more inspiring than ever. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please do share and tag away, particularly to keep raising awareness of how far we still have to go in the fight against family violence. And if you would like any further information or need support yourself, please don't hesitate to reach out. White Ribbon has a fabulous helpline on 1800RESPECT for 24-hour national sexual assault, family and domestic violence counselling. Please all look out for yourself and each other this week and always lots of love to you all.